So in our life group, um, our small group that meets on Tuesday evenings uh, over at the Beckett's house, we have recently been working on a series of videos called Jesus Among Other Gods. Uh, and is working, the whole point of the series is working to answer some of the questions that we're facing about, you know, what is it that makes Christianity unique, um, even exclusively true among the rest of the religious claims of the world. And, and the author and speaker in the series is a man named Ravi Zacharias. And, and the guy is just a master uh, philosopher and apologist for Christianity. And I, I've, I've read some of his material before, and, and I'll be honest, I was struggling to keep up. It is, it is very, very dense, very, very powerful, but, but you've got to work at it to read it. And, and so I was kind of excited when we got this series because the recommendation that I had from you know, like some people at, at the bookstore and some people online and everything was, was that this was, it was entry level. It was like Ravi Zacharias for dummies. And I was excited about that um, because I went, okay, good. We'll be able to kind of really sink our teeth into it and be able to understand it. And I am now convinced that when it comes to his scholarly and philosophical ability, I evidently am at a level that is lower than dummy. Um, and that's, that's a tough realization, but I, we, have, we have found a lot of times this collective feeling in the group of wanting to stop the video about halfway through and be like, okay, our brains are full. We've had all we can handle. <laughs> let's, let's talk about this, because I think if we just keep going the distance, we're going to be overwhelmed by it. And that's not to say that there aren't many good things that I've learned. Actually, I, like each lesson is very, very packed with things that I find myself chewing on through the week. Um, and as I was approaching... The text this week, I found myself recalling something that he had said in the first session that really, really stuck with me in relation to how we read this and how we explore this chapter of Acts today. He said this, and I'm I'm, I'm paraphrasing a couple of sentences. I'm kind of condensing it a little. But basically what he says is there's precious little to distinguish Christianity from the other mindsets of world religions apart from the person of Jesus Christ. Our divine origins, our moral code, our way of living, even our view of life after death, none of these things would truly be unique save for the way they find themselves expressed through who Jesus is and what he has accomplished through the acts of the cross and the tomb and the resurrection and the ascension. And so without those things to really translate our understanding of reality and inform who we are and how we act accordingly, we wouldn't really look that different from anybody else. And, and as I dwelt on that, 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 to me, that's both a challenge and a comfort in some ways. It's, it's a challenge because on the one hand, I really need to consider what it is that I plant my flag on for the identity of being a Christian, isn't it? I can, I can place that identity a lot of places, but, but the fact is, is I may be drawing that from something other than who Jesus is, or even worse, I may be representing him in what I claim to be his image, because let's be honest, who Jesus is and what he is about is something that is quite supernatural. It is quite mysterious, even though it has explicit description in scripture. You know, he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And that's a very explicit thing on the one hand, but on the other hand, you can spend your whole life going, okay, what does that mean? What does that actually mean? 
right? You can explore that through the whole entirety of your life, just understanding what it is that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, can't you? But then at the same time, like I say, it's, it's, it's a comfort because that also means whenever I find myself confused or unsettled in my beliefs or my practice or identity, I know exactly where I need to come back to. I know exactly where I need to go. It's the person of Jesus, his identity, his action, his intimacy with the Holy Spirit, the trajectory of his kingdom. That's the bedrock foundation that I can sink myself back into and I can find clarity again. Even if that clarity is a mysterious one, even if it, even if the trajectory of you know where he's taking me is a difficult one, and it's with that in mind that I want us to turn toward the text today and, and listen to the story here in Acts five. Okay, as we said last week, we're going we're to kind of we're going to go through. If you'll turn to Acts five with me, we're going to be going through pretty much the rest of the chapter after um, after Ananias and Sapphira, and and. And as we said last week, Luke is taking great pains to remind the church then and the church now that the real threat to the church does not come from the outside. It comes from within. And the tragedy of Ananias and Sapphira, it's starting to act like a moral filter. It's like sifting out the gold from the dirt, if, if you will. Um, and, it's, and it's sifting away those who are, we open with this idea of, of, of that, there's a new fear or a new awe or a new respect that kind of seizes not just the church but the whole community. And anybody who was going to, to, um, to use the gospel of Christ or the way of Christ or the power of the Holy Spirit for affluence for themselves, they're kind of moving away from the newborn church. They're standing at a distance because it's, it's now very clear you can't just sort of half subscribe to life in the Spirit and expect that, that it's not going to bite you, Okay. The way that the Holy Spirit manifests the reality of spiritual death and in the physical death of Ananias and Sapphira is clear, but we also see this now. He is also making life blossom. He's also making life manifest in this community of believers even more. And the healing incident that sparked so much controversy in Acts chapter 3 is now being repeated tenfold and more. And it's bringing vitality, and it's bringing notoriety to the community. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but there's this, there's this part in here where it says that, that Peter's walking around, and even who his shadow falls on, those people are healed. And, and to me, that just sounds fantastic. And, 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 and fantastic and exciting, and also fantastic. And, like, it's really, really hard for me to grasp that actually happening. It sounds like, you know, it, it sounds like healed. You know, it sounds like that kind of of spirituality and so I have trouble wrapping my mind around it and taking it seriously but when we look at the heart of what the reality is that's going on here I just want us to think about this for a second the reality is is that people are being restored and being made whole by being in the presence of God's people that's that's really what's happening there I mean whether whether it's a, a shadow or we'll see something with handkerchiefs later or, or whatever, okay? I mean, the Holy Spirit is not, the Holy Spirit is not hindered. The Holy Spirit is able to bring restoration however he wants to do that, okay? And, and that's because he's God and he's in charge and I'm not, okay? And we're just going to leave that there. I'll be, I will accept that piece that is mysterious. But, but beyond that part, the part where I really see a pull and a drive is the fact 
that when the Spirit is allowed to command the Christian community, like we see here in Acts 5, people will draw near to that community, that community will in turn draw near to those people, and they are going to experience real, tangible restoration as part of that group. Now, whether that's physical, spiritual, mental, psychological, like it's all kind of in the same package, right? Because healing is not just healing, remember? Healing is being restored to the fullness of who we were created to be in God. For the cripple, it wasn't just not being crippled anymore. For crippled, it was, for him, it was now, I, there is no barrier between me and being able to approach God because of an area of infirmity in my life. And God is doing away with those things. And, and that's how the mission of the church works. And this is just another example of that and a challenge to us. And I, and I loved this quote. Good news, which is powerless to change some of the misery or the longing of the world. Is that really, if it, if it can't do that, is it really good news? And Luke just throws it out there and makes us deal with that. He says that's the context where all this is happening, is that real transformation is happening. And the community of Jerusalem at large is kind of keeping their distance, not out of fear, but out of wonder at all this stuff that's happening. And even if they're not becoming converts, they're certainly convinced that these are good folk worth admiring and respecting and even emulating in some ways. And here's the problem. The increased credibility with the population is leading to increased infamy among the power brokers of the day. And, and Luke uses a word, depending on what you've got, he's either got righteous indignation or, or he's got jealousy. But, but the word that he uses is a word of like where an emotion literally grabs a hold of you and drives you to do something. That's, that's how powerful that word is. It's like, it's like the emotions that the Sanhedrin are feeling. It just, it just gets them by the collar and yanks at them. Makes them go. Assert their dominance over this group of followers of the way. Okay? I'm not, I'm not even going to get into my thoughts about what happened on Parliament Hill this week. Okay? Except that it made me feel a little better about U.S. politics. A little, not a lot. Not a lot, a little, okay? But I will, I will offer this commentary. You see what happens, even in the most civil, even in the most austere places, like Parliament Hill, like the temple courts, when something comes in that challenges the power. People do all kinds of silly things. People stand there and say, I don't see you, I don't see you, don't see you, you know, and we'll throw elbows or whatever it is that we're doing, okay? But we'll but but when 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 push comes to shove quite literally, okay, we will do silly things when our way of doing stuff is challenged. And that's exactly what happens here. I know there are so many things to consider. There's there's a tenue in, in this. There's the tenuous political situation and religious and economic balance that's happening in Judea between the Roman governing bodies and the Herodian dynasty that's acting kind of as their puppet people like rulers in the area and the temple authority and, 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 and this kind of almost like dry tinder that's there waiting of like an oppressed people that's just waiting to flame up into revolution with anybody that has any kind of cult of personality at all. And, and Luke doesn't deny any of that. He doesn't deny any of the externals that are going on, but he cuts into the internal. He cuts into the heart of the matter, and he just says, look, 
For the Sanhedrin, it's become, if anything about the worship of Yahweh or the faith of his people isn't coming through their control of the situation, it's a threat, plain and simple, done. That is how they translate, zeal for your house will consume me. Rather than the way that Jesus translated, zeal for your house will consume me in the Gospels, which was, God should be allowed to operate unhindered. And if you're putting something in his way, we should toss the tables out. It's the complete opposite way of the, where, of the, of the way that their zeal is going. And so, so their righteous indignation, their zeal, when you cut to the heart of it, it's actually jealousy that God's doing something outside of their purvey and it doesn't match with what they want to do. It. It's really, you know, I mean, how many times have we been guilty of the same thing? God wouldn't work that way. God wouldn't work through that person. It's not the way I think he should do it because it's not the way I would do it. It's not the way I would want it done. Last time the Sanhedrin gets caught off guard with all this by Peter's speaking through the Spirit, right? And, and they don't, they thought they were just pulling in an uneducated fisherman and straightening him out. And all of a sudden they realize they've got a much larger problem on their hands. And so this time they are ready, they think. They surround the entire gathering, they take all the leaders, and they imprison them immediately before they can do or say anything else. And I love how, how this whole story is, is such a contrast to the gravity of the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Luke is really being explicit to show not just the unguarded frustration, but also the ineffectiveness of the Sanhedrin, of the religious leaders and reminds us of who is really in charge of this situation, okay? It's, it's almost comedic, actually, although I know it probably wasn't at the time. I am sure that they were feeling the parallels. That, you know, basically, they, 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 they arrest them all, put them in the cell with these threats of, of terrible things to come in the morning, okay? But then here's what happens. All those threats are easily disarmed by the messenger of God who just casually strolls through the gates and passes the guards undetected and unlocks all the doors and ushers all the people out, locks the doors behind them, and then brings the whole assembly out right under the nose of all the authorities. Like, Mission Impossible has nothing on the Holy Spirit and the messengers of God. Like, this is covert ops, people. I love this. This is great. And now you have kind of almost this, this it, it's, it's funny, it's like this Keystone Cops kind of situation where in the morning the temple authorities are coming down and they're like, where did they go? And right at the time they're like, where did they go? Somebody comes in and goes, why did you let them go? They're out in the temple and they're preaching about Jesus again. What are you supposed to do with that? Every time you try to cut this thing off, it just keeps sprouting up around you. And, 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 and I imagine you get kind of frustrated. And, and, and so for Luke, and I think for anybody reading, there's no question who's in charge well before Peter takes that spokesperson role again and names Jesus as the source of all this, names him as the risen king. He, he is the only one worth taking orders from. And he is the one who is Messiah, God, with us. And so we're actually taking our orders from God. And, of course, there's kind of an underhanded challenge there. Like, hey, we know how to take orders from God. Why don't you? Okay, that's the part where they want to start killing them, okay? They don't, they don't just get frustrated because... 
They don't just get frustrated because they can't control them. They, they, they get frustrated because they just keep kind of putting this thing back in their face of like, well, we're acting on God's orders. So whose orders are you acting on? We already kind of know, but it never helps to have somebody kind of shove it in your face like that, does it? And the reaction is just, it, it's visceral, isn't it? Like, I mean, the same way that the crowd in Nazareth is, is so compelled to violence at the inconvenience of who Jesus says he is, back in, back in the Gospel of Luke, that same thing is happening in the Sanhedrin. And it is only the most respected, the most wisdom-tempered voice that steps in and saves the apostles' hide from certain execution. But again, Luke makes it very, very clear this is not a human redemption. This is, not a, this is not a human agency. This is the spirit who is even allowed charge of those who do not realize the truth about Jesus to affect the kingdom of God. Gamaliel, the honored elder statesman of the Sanhedrin, this, this super rabbi, this Pharisaic epitome, he is the one who is going to be used to protect the followers of the way by the Holy Spirit. And it's... it's his speech, his argument is so, there's so many pieces to it. It's, it, it's, it's hard to go like, okay, well, where's he actually coming from here? And I think that's kind of the point. Because I, I don't know that Luke's actually really concerned where Gamaliel's coming from. I mean, on the one hand, it is so open in thought. It seems so wise. It's really, really hard not to place him in the same camp as like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, these people who were in the Sanhedrin, who were part of the religious leadership, but they were this dissenting minority who were willing to consider Jesus as Messiah. Unlike them, I mean, we have, we have no record of him ever being counted among the followers of the way. Nicodemus, he becomes a follower. Joseph of Arimathea, he's out there. He's a follower. Gamaliel, we don't know. We don't know what happens after this. Okay? There's no indication by anybody of, of whether he you know, follows or doesn't follow or anything. So on the one hand, it's really open and it seems to invite the idea that he might be. On the other hand, it's, there's, there's something kind of coldly practical, even kind of dismissive about his advice. Look, guys, don't overreact to this situation. We already cut the head off this beast anyway. Okay? We're just, it's, just sit back, wait for it to finish with its death throes, just like the ones before it. I mean, it really depends on how you read it, doesn't it? And so I really wrestled with what, what do we make of his argument? What do we make of his advice and, and what it says in regard to the Holy Spirit? And, and where I come down to is this. Despite any calculation, despite any politics, any of that stuff, in his heart of hearts, Gamaliel is very, very unsettled by all of this as well. There is something different about this group of rabble-rousers and faith healers and proclaimers. And he knows this because he recalls the actions and words of Jesus of Nazareth. He is aware that Jesus is different. He's not like Theodos. He's not like Judas the Galilean. No matter how much the Sanhedrin, or we for that matter today, would like to just squeeze him into the political revolutionary box. There is definitely a piece of the gospel that says, like, we need to erase this, you know, over-under class hierarchy thing, you know, because God has, we are now all one in the spirit of Christ. 
But that's not just what he came to do. He was not just inciting rebellion. It's so explicit. My kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my followers would fight like followers of this world. But they don't. And that's kind of what he's recalling here. Judas, Judas the Galilean, both of them claimed kind of this Messiah identity that felt that, 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 that fit the cult of personality of the day. We're going to march in. We're going to kick out the Romans. We're going to establish the Jewish state. We're going to, you know, it's going to be great, guys. They were marching on the promises of liberation and power, and the Nazarene doesn't do either of those things. In fact, he does the opposite. He won't say, yes, I am. I am the Messiah. I am, you know. The closest he ever gets is when they're like, so, are you? He goes, as you've said. And he's thinking about that because he was there. Gamaliel was there during that trial. He had to have been. He's one of the ruling council. He's in that audience. Both Judas and Judas the Galilean, they resist arrest. They were publicly broken and without their charismatic influence, they left kind of this leaderless husk of a revolution that quickly died. In, in, in Judas's instance, it kind of flared back up like his son took up the mantle for a little while and then he got killed. And then grandson and he you know it kind of popped back up for a little while but it never really amounted to anything and that's not what's happening here it's quite the opposite like i said gamaliel is doubtless a part of the group that tried and sentenced jesus and he's using these examples of these other revolutionaries not to compare but to contrast the personality and the legacy of jesus of nazareth and I think it's the final statement that carries the most weight for the, for the Sanhedrin. Who really wants to find themselves resisting God? I mean, their, their history is filled with stories of an innovative God and an insubordinate people. You read the whole, you read the whole Testament that way. God's like, I want to move in this way. And they're like, no, we're, we're okay without that, thanks. And even where they feel that they are, the resulting exile of God's presence, that's something that even for today, the Jewish people long for that return, right? It's still a part of their identity. They're longing for that return. They're still waiting for God to resolve the exile of God's presence that happened. And so caution and patience, it isn't just politically savvy advice here. It's spiritually responsible discernment for them. Even if you can't put your finger on what makes this peculiar group unique, you don't want to find yourselves fighting against God again and keeping his presence away. And so the words have their effect, and death at least is suspended for the time being for the apostles. Pain, however, is not. And the flogging that happens to them, it's not... It's not as brutal as the one Jesus undergoes, okay? It's, it's the Jewish lash. It's not the Roman flagellum, okay? The pain is real. People have died under the 39 minus 1, okay? But it's more designed to humiliate than to destroy. The spirit is the same, though. The spirit is designed, the spirit of the punishment is to break you. Publicly, physically, the suffering and the public humiliation are, are no less real for the apostles than it was designed to be for Jesus. And I sometimes wonder if Gamaliel was around to witness the sentencing. 
the execution of the sentencing, right, of the, of the, of the flogging. Because I think if he had been, he would have been much better able to articulate that undefined difference of these Galileans. Because they endure the punishment and the ridicule and the scorn and the pain with the praise of the Nazarene on their lips. They leave with broken skin and unbroken spirits. They leave with beaten backs and untamed joy. And the most startling thing is that their praise focuses on the fact that because of their suffering, they are filled with joy. Why? Because they have been counted worthy to suffer what their leader experienced, worthy to suffer for the name, to, to have e- the privilege to experience even a shadow of what their leader did. It's obvious that something is very, very upside down here. Something is very, very not normal here. You don't suffer for something or someone who is dead and gone. You don't suffer for an idea that is past or just a, just a, a concept. You, you suffer for someone who's alive, who you love. And there's this unshakable, unhindered conviction that Jesus is exactly that, alive, powerful, able, now. Peter says that Jesus has been exalted in order to be the leader of those who will follow. And this implies that not only is he the one that's out in front encouraging those suffering disciples, but he's actually with them in that suffering, guiding them in their trials. He's perfecting them in his image even through the suffering. What is it that truly makes us different, church? What is it that truly makes us different? What is absolutely irreplaceable? What is absolutely indispensable about who we are and how we exist? I think it's this. I think it's that our gospel is an unashamed gospel of losing. It has a suffering savior at its heart rather than a triumphant revolutionary. In fact, one of Gamaliel's overzealous students would later write to a small group of Christ believers in the town of Philippi and tell them that the only way that Jesus becomes the triumphant king is that he first has to be completely emptied and removed of any power whatsoever, that he has to endure suffering and dying in the most excruciating and humiliating way imaginable. That is the only way that any of the power happens. Our good news is nailed to a cross and left to die. Our good news is placed in a cave tomb and left to rot. That's the only way it actually becomes good news. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Doesn't mean it's not true. Doesn't mean it's not compelling. Doesn't mean it's not the thing that actually changes your life. God is doing something beyond our natural understanding there. He still, he was then, he still is now. That he is able, because of his might and his goodness and his graciousness, to take the worst point in human history and make it the high point of salvation. He is able to turn it all on its head. Because he's God, he's able. And I don't know any way other than the power of the Holy Spirit be able to get my heart 
to embrace that fully to the point that it flips my perspective on what success is, on what power is, on what purpose is in order to match my leaders. And so you ask, you know, like, what, what does this passage have to say about the Holy Spirit? I think that's what it has to say about the Holy Spirit is that's the only way we get to that point where the cross becomes the pinnacle of salvation is through the Holy Spirit reorienting my heart and reorienting my life. And there's a practical application to that that's, that's going to be maybe a little strange for you to hear if this wasn't strange enough already. It's this. Because this is good news to those who will hear it. And I need to hear it. I think you do too. And here it is. Are you hurting? Are you undergoing trial? Do you feel ostracized or ridiculed or dismissed or denied by others because of how you are choosing to devote yourself? Are you beyond your limits? Are you dealing with failure? Are you at the end of your rope? Has the jealousy or indignancy or obstinance of someone left its mark on you because you're trying to be a disciple? Do you find yourself attached to suffering or loss right now and it will not let you go, especially as you are trying to follow in the steps of Jesus Christ? Not flippantly, not sarcastically, and with as much conviction and compassion as I can offer? Good. Good. Congratulations. You also have been found worthy to suffer for the name. If you're willing to be led by the Spirit through it. If not, then it just becomes meaningless. It becomes a question mark that you can't straighten out. Why would God allow this to happen? But if you can allow the Spirit to be at work in you, now you realize that you've been invited into the steps of the Savior to gain appreciation for his graciousness for you. You've been selected to know the depths of your value to him precisely through your pain, not in the absence of it. Because in your pain is not the absence of God, but the very footsteps of God that lead to the cross and to the grave and through those things and beyond to the place where he is lifted up as the example of the power and the glory of the Father, and you will be too. That path is now your path, and you've got a trustworthy guide. You have a leader, Jesus, who knows the way through the pain, yes, even through death, into the glory that's beyond And that may not bring you a big sunny disposition on this long weekend, but I do believe that it will bring you deep joy, deep purpose, and a peace that is indeed part of being an image bearer of Jesus, the one who was first crucified and then glorified. And so today we lift him high. We lift him high, his praises on our lips, even when the trial comes. It did not overcome him. It will not overcome his spirit living in us. It was not his end. It will not be our end either. This is the unique claim of being a follower 
of Christ. And this is the encouragement that I offer to you as my brother and my sister today. So as we worship, let your praise rise, even if it rises through broken lips or broken hearts, because this truth remains. He is your guide. He is your redeemer. He is mighty to save you. And you are called worthy, even worthy to suffer for his name. And he alone is guiding you into the glory of the resurrected life, this life that is found in his name and no other name. Let's stand and let's worship together.